If you would please, would you turn your Bibles once again to John chapter 7, John chapter 7, verse 53, as we continue in our expositional study, and you'll find John chapter 7, verse 53, on page 1231 in the Pew Bible. The passage that is before us today records one of the most well-known and most dramatic scenes in the Bible. The religious leaders of Jerusalem have in their custody a woman caught in adultery. They bring her before Jesus and call upon him to decide her fate. They remind him that according to the law, Moses commanded that such offenders should be put to death and put to death by stoning. With this woman's life hanging in the balance, the religious leaders then asked Jesus, what do you say? Jesus then issues one of the most repeated lines in the Bible. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. While this is one of the most well-known scenes found in the Gospels, we face an unusual challenge with today's text. Before we examine these verses, we need to deal with a preliminary interpretive issue. It is generally agreed among scholars, even the most conservative of scholars, that this passage is not original to John's gospel. Meaning when the apostle John wrote his gospel, he did not include this story commonly known as the woman caught in adultery. That is why our Bibles include a footnote. If you look carefully at 53, you'll see a footnote that brings us down to the bottom. And there it explains that this passage is very likely not original to John. Some translations take an additional step of separating this passage from the surrounding text by marking it off with a set of brackets or using an alternative typeface. Well, this raises two questions. First, why is it said that this passage may not or is likely not original to John? And second, if John didn't write it, why then is it now in our Bibles? There are several reasons this passage is thought not to be original to John. But the most conclusive reason comes from the manuscript evidence. Allow me to remind you that we do not have the original manuscripts that were actually written by John's hand. These have been lost to history. What we do have are copies of his gospel, and there are many copies that were made. And the reason these copies were made was to distribute John's gospel 
to the many churches that were being planted throughout the Roman Empire. What is important for us to know is that the earliest copies that were made shortly after John's original do not include this passage. Because the earliest copies of John's gospel do not include the passage, this strongly suggests that this passage was not original to John's manuscript. That leads us to the second question. How then did it get into our Bibles? To assist us in answering this question, it will be helpful to know that while this story is not thought to be original to John, most scholars accept the story as historically authentic, meaning, although it was not originally recorded by John, most think this was an actual event that occurred in Jesus's life. Here's why. This story about the woman caught in adultery appears in the writings of some of the early church bishops and theologians, men like Ambrose and Augustine, who lived and wrote in the fourth century, meaning in the 300s AD. It is believed that this story was told by one or more of the apostles and then passed down in the church by word of mouth. Some have said, well, maybe this didn't come from the apostles, but was an invention of the early church. But that is highly unlikely. That is because the early church maintained the strict teaching of scripture that warned of the dangers of sexual sin. Adultery is specifically prohibited by the seventh commandment. What is the seventh commandment? Thou shall not commit adultery. The early church taught that breaking this commandment was a mortal sin, a sin that imperils one's soul. But this story, which sees the woman escape punishment and is allowed to go free, if this story were misunderstood, it might be seen by some as diminishing the seriousness of this sin. Therefore, many conclude that the early church would not have invented a story like this and would not have taught it unless they strongly believed that this story was authentic and portrays the historical teachings of Christ. But again, if this story is not original to John, how then did it get into our Bibles? In the fourth century, a priest by the name of Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, a work known as the Latin Vulgate. This translation, the Latin translation, became the primary text for the church at Rome, which would become the Roman Catholic Church. Apparently, Jerome 
like Ambrose and Augustine, was familiar with this story, and it is he, Jerome, who inserted it into John's gospel. Since that fourth century translation, the translation that made in the 300s, this story, the story of the woman caught in adultery, has appeared in, every, in nearly every English translation since then. A third question arises. How do we approach this text? How do we approach this text if we understand that it may not be original to John, but may be historically authentic, meaning Jesus actually said these words? Well, this has been debated for centuries, and there are differing views. It is an important question because if this passage is not original to John, we cannot view this passage as holding the same authority as the text that surrounds it. Only the text that comes directly from John can be counted as inspired, meaning led by the Holy Spirit. Well, the consensus of these many centuries of debate is that this passage is useful for instruction, but not the establishment of doctrine useful for instruction, but not the establishment of doctrine. It is useful for instruction in that it gives us a further understanding of the heart of Christ. But because it is not thought to be original to John's text, we need to be cautious about drawing firm doctrinal principles in which we might, procla we might proclaim, well, this is so, because the scripture says so. Now, I recognize that some of us are surprised because we think, well, everything in the Bible is the word of God. It was a surprise to me too. I was unaware of this until I studied this passage. And so I could have glossed over this and not mentioned it, but that would not be fair to you. I want to give you the full story. So let's go please to John 5, I mean John 7 verse 53. John 7, verse 53. Again, even though it is not likely original to John, it is firmly believed that this is an authentic historical account that comes from the life of Jesus. Let's go, please, to John 53. John 7, verse 53. Because we don't know who is the source, meaning we don't know who is the source with, with full confidence, I will need to be careful. Ordinarily, I would say John, John the Apostle tells us. But in this passage, I will try to identify the source of this story as the narrator. Beginning at John 7, verse 53, the narrator sets the scene for this highly charged encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders. And everyone went to his own house. Chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, 
commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? After spending the night encamped on the nearby Mount of Olives, Jesus returns to the temple in order to continue his teaching. Like the teachers and the rabbis of his time, he takes a customary seated position. And he sits likely on a stone bench that would have been provided for the teachers, for the rabbis. And as he sits, we are told, all the people came to him. So powerful are his words that when he began to teach, all the people, meaning all those who are gathered in the temple, came to hear what he would say. But suddenly his teaching is interrupted by a delegation of scribes and Pharisees. These men brought to him a woman caught in adultery and then set her in the midst. Some have made her to stand before the group. These phrases, brought her and set her, well, that is the language that describes a prisoner who is made to stand before a judge. The religious leaders have brought her, brought her to Jesus because they want him to render a verdict. Let's notice an important detail about the discovery of this woman's crime. In verse 3, the narrator says, they brought to him a woman caught in adultery. But the scribes and the Pharisees make the detail of this discovery even clearer. In verse 4, they say to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. It would appear that this is an open and shut case, since she was caught in the act. But this detail that she was caught in the act raises some questions. One would assume that the participants in this illicit encounter, an adulterous affair, would take precautions not to be discovered. Of course, it has happened that a shocked and unsuspecting spouse has walked in on the act, but that's certainly unusual. But the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees have this woman in their custody and are able to bring her to Jesus while he's in the temple makes the discovery of this crime and its timing a little suspicious. Some have suggested that this woman may have been set up as part of a larger plan to get to Jesus. And as we will see shortly, the narrator does tell us that the entire point of these religious leaders bringing her to Jesus is not for her, it's to get to him. Since that is the case, this woman is essentially a pawn in a wicked game that's being played by these scheming religious leaders. The religious leaders, they have no interest in her, they have no concern for her soul, and they have very little concern for what she did. They were only using her as a means to an end. And what was that end? To destroy Jesus. Another piece of evidence that her being caught in the act 
may be part of a setup devised by the religious leaders is that the man is nowhere to be found. Obviously, she had a partner, right? Adultery takes two people. He's nowhere to be found. Was he given immunity, perhaps? Excused by the scribes and Pharisees because he was part of the plot to trap Jesus? We don't know. But what we do know is that the charge of adultery was and is a serious matter. It's a crime according to the Mosaic law. Now, no matter who instigated this illicit sexual affair, this woman was still a party to it, and she has broken the Mosaic law. The seventh commandment says, thou shall not commit adultery. And we are now made witness as the religious leaders present their case to Jesus. Notice in verse 4, they begin by addressing him as teacher. Teacher, they say. Now, I submit this is a disingenuous piece of flattery. As we've discussed many times, they don't see Jesus as a teacher, as a rabbi. They don't accept him as such because he's not formally trained. He's a carpenter's son from Nazareth. He's not a rabbi. So they, they're, they're disingenuous, as they call him, teacher. But they do address him as teacher. Why? Because they are going to call upon him to render his judgment on a key matter concerning God's law. And so while they call him teacher, what they're doing is they're setting him up to be the judge because they want him to render a verdict about this adulterous woman's fate. And so if we look at verse 5, the religious leaders, what do they do? They take the role of prosecutor. The religious leaders take the role of prosecutor as they present their case to Jesus. Which again, this appears to be an open and shut case. Why? She was literally caught in the act. Therefore, these prosecutors go directly to the issue of punishment. They already decided she's guilty. She's caught in the act. We're going right to the punishment phase. And they remind Jesus that the law calls for the death penalty. Look at verse 5. They say to Jesus, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They are intentionally pitting Jesus against Moses, the giver of the law. Moses, they say, commanded us. He didn't recommend it. He didn't suggest it. He commanded, he, they say. He commanded us to stone such women. And then in contrast to the Mosaic law, they say, now Jesus, what do you say? And the you is emphatic. They're pitting Jesus and Moses against each other. What do you say? As the scribes and Pharisees give a call for the death penalty, they conveniently omit an important aspect of the law. They point out that Moses commanded us to stone such women, but what they conveniently avoid mentioning is that the Mosaic law called for the death penalty for both parties, for the woman and the man. 
but they've brought no man, just her. After the religious leaders remind Jesus that Moses commanded the death penalty in this case, they go on to challenge him. What do you say? Now then we're given an editorial comment by the narrator. Look please at verse 6. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. You see, the reason for their accusation against the woman was not, not about her, about him. What do you say? And this they said, testing him. Now, this test, the Greek word for test that appears in this, in this uh, position, it has the connotation that the test which is being presented is designed, it's intentionally designed to cause the person being tested to fail. We're going to test you, but we've, de we've designed it so we know you're going to fail. That's what the connotation of the Greek word is here. In other words, the religious leaders believe they have set up Jesus and they're presenting with him, to him a no-win situation. The NIV captures that no-win situation as the NIV renders the Greek by saying they were using this question as a trap. You see? They figured he has no way out of this. The narrator also tells us why they're posing this question and this no-win question for him to boot. Verse 6, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Right? They wanted to find something that something in his answer which would allow them to lodge an accusation against him. We're not told what kind of accusation they're, they're trying to steer him into, but there are two possible scenarios that have been suggested. If Jesus objected, objected to the stoning of the woman, they would have accused him of opposing the Mosaic law. And if he opposed God's law, they would have said he is disqualified from being the Messiah. On the other hand, if he declared that she should be stoned, the Jewish leaders would then run and tell the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, that this man is, a, is inciting an execution in defiance of Roman law. Remember, Roman law only allowed the Roman governor to execute. And so both options are clearly problematic for Jesus. It's a no-win situation. There is a third option that was possible. Jesus could abstain. He could, what they say, recuse himself from this matter and refuse to answer their question. But what, if, what would have been the result there? Well, this, this woman would have likely ended up being brutally killed by being stoned to death. And since we know the compassion of Christ's heart, he will not leave her in the hands of these evil men. Let's see what Jesus will do next. And let's go to the remainder of verse 6. But Jesus stooped down, and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Some translations do not have that qualifying phrase about his not hearing. 
But the important part of this verse is Jesus writing on the ground. Now, since this takes place in the temple, an area that is paved with stone, he might be writing in the dust and the dirt that has been tracked into the temple courtyard and has accumulated there. And so he's writing on the stone in the dust that is laying there. It's especially disappointing that we're not told what Jesus wrote because this is the only instance where we are told about Jesus writing something, that is, during his earthly ministry. And although we are not told what he wrote, there are many commentators who have made suggestions over the centuries about what he might be writing. But these are all speculative. We have no idea what he was writing. And that's why I'm inclined to agree with those scholars who point out that since we are not told what Jesus wrote, the focus ought to be on how he wrote. And this we are specifically told. How did he write? With his finger. Now that might seem like an insignificant detail. Until we, are recall, until we recall that Jesus has been asked about the Mosaic law, in particular the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Let's bear in mind that when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, they were not written on parchment. They were written on stone. And those Ten Commandments were written into the stone not by Moses, but by the finger of God. And so it may be that as Jesus writes with his finger on the stone floor of the temple, it is a reminder that while the religious leaders seek to test him on a point of the law, it is he who is the author of the law, and it is he who is the judge of all things holy. As Jesus writes on the ground, it seems that he took a little more time than the religious leaders would have liked. Because as Jesus writes on the ground, they begin to press him. Like angry children, they begin to press him. And they press him repeatedly for an answer. This is the sense of the verbs that are found at the beginning of verse 7. Where we are told they continued asking him. Meaning they asked him over and over. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Jesus, of course, he's always ready with an answer. It's not as if he needed more time to come up with a, with a response. I believe he wanted them to display their impatience and their anger. And therefore, it would show and be an indicator they're not seeking justice. They're not after righteousness. They weren't interested in God's law. They were not interested in maintaining the moral, the, the moral atmosphere of the community. They had one goal, to kill Jesus, to destroy him. Let's consider for a moment the ethical implications of the case itself. These men, the scribes and Pharisees, they are no, they're in no position to prosecute this case. What we are seeing here is a clear case of prosecutorial misconduct. Nothing new under the sun is there. You see, 
They're not objective, these prosecutors. They have an agenda. They were not dispassionate. Oh, they're full of passion. They're full of hate. Their hate was not for this woman's sin. Their hate was for Jesus. They were using her as a pawn to achieve their own agenda, which was an agenda of murder. They wanted to kill Jesus. And so in his mercy and compassion, Jesus is going to intervene on her behalf. As they repeatedly press Jesus for an answer, Jesus pauses from his writing and he stands up. Apparently, he's writing on the ground on the temple floor from a seated position. That was the position he had taken earlier when he was teaching the the crowds. And so he's bent over, he's writing in the ground, and then he raises himself up and he looks at the crowd and he says, He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Just one sentence. To these men and to the entire crowd, just one sentence. And it it has a profound and arresting effect on all who are gathered there. Jesus does not say, whoever has not committed adultery Let that person cast the first stone. He doesn't say that, does he? Instead, what he does say is, whoever is without sin, let that person cast the first stone. So let's consider first what Jesus has accomplished with this statement, and then we'll consider some of the implications of his words. In terms of what Jesus has accomplished, we will notice that Jesus has evaded the trap that was set for him. By including in his invitation... Let him cast the first stone. He has affirmed the seriousness of the sin of adultery. And therefore, he cannot be accused of denying the Mosaic law. Second, he avoided the charge of instigating an execution in defiance of the Roman law. Because by his statement, he puts the onus back on those accusing the woman. He says, he who is without sin, you throw the first stone. I'm not a participant in this. You throw the first stone. Now let's consider the implications of his words. But as we do, we will bear in mind that because this passage is very likely not part of the inspired text, meaning part of John's original text, we need to be cautious about drawing hard doctrinal principles. However, if we find a theological principle here in this passage, and that principle is found elsewhere in Scripture, in the inspired text, we may say that this passage offers support of that accepted and inspired principle. This verse, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, is often said to serve as a warning that we should not judge other people. It is said, truthfully and accurately, that no one except for Christ is without sin. Therefore, while Christ can judge, we are not qualified to judge because none of us are without sin. 
but that would be a mistaken conclusion. Consider Christ's teaching from Matthew 18. Jesus says this. He says this to the church. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Clearly, that requires the use of judgment, doesn't it? Because you first need to identify that your brother has committed a sin, and then you need to confront your brother on that sin. That requires judgment. But consider a society where all judgment is suspended. And many people actually want this, and they call for this. This is the crowd that says, when someone points out, this is wrong, this should not happen, these are the people who say, they wag their finger and they say, oh, judge not lest ye be judged. Right? But what would happen if there was a society where there was no judgment and if there's no judgment, there can be no penalty. There can be no reporting of a crime. Who are you to judge? Let that person continue committing that crime. Well, such a society like this would, would fall into anarchy. Obviously. No, the Bible does not call us to the suspension of judgment. We cannot judge another person's motives, but we can certainly judge another person's actions. When somebody steals my wallet and I see him take my wallet from my pants, I know I can judge that he has committed a crime. He's burglary. He's, he's, he's robbed me. Of course I'm going to make a judgment. But let's bear in mind another teaching of Christ where he warns, first, take the beam out of your own eye and then you can see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. And so he's not precluding us from judgment He's saying there's a prerequisite. Deal with yourself first, then deal with the other person. And so the key principle here is self-examination. We must examine ourselves and our sin before we judge another. Now, this avoids two problems. First, hypocrisy. And most importantly, judging another where we have the wrong motives. In the passage that is before us today from John 7, 7 and 8, it is this second issue that's obviously in view. The religious leaders have brought charges against this woman, and they have done so with the wrong motives. This woman's sin was serious, and it should be confronted. But the motives of the religious leaders are corrupt, their goal was not to uphold the law or protect the community from moral decay. Their goal was to destroy Jesus. Therefore, when Jesus says, he who is without sin, let him cast a first stone, the primary message here is we must first examine ourselves. You've got to examine your motives before you judge her. After Jesus gives his call for self-examination, he gives the crowd time to do just that. At verse 8, we are told that after he addresses the crowd, he stoops down, he begins to write on the ground. 
Let's go please to verse 9. Let's look there. Then those who heard it, Jesus' words, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. One by one, the religious leaders and the crowd quietly turn and they walk away. The exit begins with the oldest and they are then followed by the younger. We will suppose that the older folks realized that their longer lives gave them more time and opportunity to sin. While the younger people, well, perhaps the sin was fresher on their minds. And so they all turned and walked away. We're told that Jesus was left alone. Now the accused woman, she's still there. And yet we are told that Jesus is left alone alone. Why? Because only he meets the given qualification. Only he is without sin. And yet, while he is without sin, and he is fully qualified to judge her, he will not. At least not yet. And the reason I say not yet is because there is a day coming when all people, both the living and the dead, will stand before Christ for the final judgment. But for now, what we see illustrated here is the grace and mercy of our Lord. While Jesus is left alone, standing in his sinless perfection, we are told that, quote, the woman is standing in the midst. Before, this phrase of the woman standing in the midst described her standing in the middle of the crowd. But now that everyone has gone, it is likely that this refers to her standing in the midst of the temple, meaning she and Jesus are alone in the middle of this vast stone courtyard in the temple. There is no one there except Jesus and this woman. And now for the first time, someone speaks to the woman. And it is, of course, Jesus. Let's look, please, at verses 10 and 11. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. As Jesus addresses her as woman, that might sound to our modern ears somewhat disrespectful or rude. But we will recall that Jesus addressed his own mother as woman. He addressed Mary as woman at the wedding at Cana. And he will again dress her as woman while he's on the cross. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, he will say, woman, behold your son. And so Jesus means no disrespect, but he says to her, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? To which he answers, no one, Lord. 
In my mind, she is saying this through tears. Tears of relief. Think about it. Just a moment ago, she was about to be dragged away by an angry mob and subjected to a painful death, a mob hurling stones at her head. But now she's spared, all because of this man. And so she says, crying with relief, no one, Lord. Some translations render the Greek as, sir, no one, sir. Now Jesus has just saved her life, and therefore she would surely address him with a title of respect, such as sir. But while he has saved her life physically, does this woman see, her, uh, see him as her spiritual savior and therefore address him as Lord? But well, we don't know. But we will suspect that from this moment forward, she will now see everything, even Jesus, from a new perspective. I believe a brush with death will do that. You're going to see everything from a new perspective. Jesus has shown her that he has the power to save. And after she replies that no one has remained to condemn her, Jesus has a final word for her. At verse 11, he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let's make an important observation at this point. It should be noted that Jesus says nothing about forgiveness. He doesn't say, I forgive you. What he does say is, neither do I condemn you. Now let's ask a question. What did condemnation mean to the crowd that just left? Stated another way. If the religious leaders and the crowd had condemned her, what would have happened to her? She would have been dead. Dead. So in this context, condemnation ends in death. When Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you, he's saying, I will not take your life, I will spare your life. At the same time, we've got to bear in mind that her sin does indeed call for the death penalty. But here's a thing to bear in mind. All sin results in the death penalty. Doesn't the Bible say the wages of sin is death? You see, God's judgment for sin, all sin, is death. And yet Jesus spares her. Why? Well, I'd like to suggest a possible reason. Not because he has decided to excuse or overlook adultery. But in his mercy, Jesus is giving her an opportunity to repent. He has extended her physical life that she might have the time and the opportunity to repent and believe. You see, our God is a God of second chances. I know that's cliche. We've heard it many times, but it is true. Our God is a God of second chances. The Bible says God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Repentance. At this point, she is not condemned, but she's not forgiven either. If she is to be forgiven, she will need to repent 
and believe and turn her heart to Christ. Now that she has a temporary reprieve, meaning her life has been temporarily extended, Jesus gives her two commands. First, he says to her, go, meaning she is free to go. She has been spared from death, the death sentence that the mob wanted to give her, and that according to the law, she actually deserved. But while Jesus tells her that she is free to go, she is not free to go and sin. Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. Let's ask this question. After this woman has come within inches of losing her life and having stones hurled into her head, do we think she's going to go back to her adulterous life? Possibly, but not likely. That's a serious wake-up call, being threatened with having stones hurled at your head. Being caught in such things typically is. But Jesus does not limit his command by saying, do not go and commit adultery anymore, does he? He gives her a much more sweeping command. He tells her, go and sin no more. Is Jesus calling her to a life of sinless perfection? Short answer is yes, he is. But will she be successful? The obvious answer is no. We know this from experience, don't we? We all fail and we all sin. And that is why we need a Savior. None of us will be saved by the law, by being good people. We need a Savior. Salvation is found only through faith in Christ. But even though the sinless life is not possible... The sinless life is not possible just so long as we live in these fleshly bodies. That does not mean we get to excuse our sin. The Apostle Paul recognized that although our God is a God of grace and gives forgiveness to all believe, Paul said that God's grace is not a license to go on sinning. Romans 5 says, this is Paul, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace May abound, meaning should I keep on sinning so God can, can keep giving me grace, can keep forgiving me, and I can show how great a God he is? What does Paul say? By no means. He goes on to say that for those who believe, our lives are no longer our own. They are not to live the way we want. We belong to Christ. And so over and over again, Jesus has intervened on our behalf. Over and over, he has given us grace after grace, mercy after mercy. And for those who believe, he has spared us from the second death. And what has he given us? Eternal life. And so let it be our desire not to live according to the ways of the world, but according to the ways of Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your guidance and for your power. Lead us on the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And when we stumble, Lord, and we will, we know that you are ready to lift us up again. Lord Jesus, we praise you for while this screaming, this scheming world 
wants to throw stones at us, we look to you, our rock of salvation. Amen.